0: Hello and welcome to The Longview, View a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Longview is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go and check out all that the Dice Tower has to offer at Dicetower.com. There's a huge number of sister podcasts in the Dice Tower Network, and there's really something there for everyone. Whether you're looking for something funny and something amusing, check out Flip the Table. If you're looking for something that's a serious in-depth analysis of game and game theory, look no further than something like Ludology. If you're looking for the latest news and reviews, check out Board Game Breakfast and Tom and Z and Eric's reviews, and it's just a huge storehouse of information for you, now with a complete searchable database, so go and check out Dicetower.com. Belongview is also proudly sponsored by Gamesurplus.com. Gamesurplus.com is your first and best choice for online board gaming purchases, need proof, Just order anything from them. You will be amazed at their prices, you will be super satisfied with their shipping speed, and you will be very happy with the care that they take in their packaging. As gamers, we all love for things to arrive undamaged, unharmed. You're going to get that from Game Surplus every time. If you're looking for a particular game, shoot Velma or Amos an email over at games at gamesurplus.com and tell them what you're looking for, and they will do their best to track it down for you, regardless of whether it's an import or a domestic title. That's gamesurplus.com. Great prices, legendary customer service. I also like to give a shout-out to my local game store, The Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. If you are in the northeastern PA region, why don't you come on down the Interstate 80 corridor, get off at the Main Street exit in Stroudsburg, and go check them out. They are a huge resource for gamers. Lots of games in stock. More being added all the time. Uh, It's just a wonderful place to go. Lots of open table space. A friendly and knowledgeable staff. That's The Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. If you're around on Monday night, stop by. Lloyd Keller and I are always there doing demos on Monday nights. This past Monday night, we played a rousing game of Mysterium. Before that, we played a couple rounds of Dark Moon, new title from Stronghold. Everybody had a great time. So stop on by and check out all the Gamer's Edge has to offer. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View, and today I am very pleased to be joined by a newcomer to the show uh, all the way from England. Uh, A gentleman by the name of Chris Phillips reached out to me and said he would be willing to talk about one of my favorite games, and apparently it's one of his as well. So, uh, Chris, I want to say thanks for agreeing to be on the show.
1: Hi, thanks for inviting me.
0: Not a problem at all. It's my pleasure. Always nice to get to meet somebody new. Um, So, Chris, uh, you had uh, kind of agreed when I had put out a call uh, on the Longview Forums and Mm -hmm. also on the London page um, to talk about the game of London by Martin Wallace. And uh, you were one of the people who responded and said, yeah, you know, that would be great. And uh, then you were willing to uh, uh, throw yourself in there and uh, throw your hat into the ring, as we say, and uh, come on the show. So I want to say thank you for agreeing. To do that.
1: No problem, no problem. We'll see how we get on.
0: Oh, it'll be great. So, um, Chris, uh, this is a game uh, by Martin Wallace, as I'm sure you know. It was uh, published in 2010, and the artists listed, um, and, and I bring that up because the art is wonderful, uh, is uh, Mike Atkinson, Peter Dennis, uh, who is a longtime, uh, I think, contributor to Martin's Games, and Simon Jannerland. Um, these are just uh, uh, wonderful artists who worked on the, the cards for this game because this is primarily a card-driven game. Uh, it is for two to four players and And it is supposed to play in about 90 minutes, and I find that to be generally pretty accurate, uh, as long as you're not playing with some people who are particularly AP-prone. And so this is a game that has been around for a while. It's rated a 7.45 on uh, BGG, which is a very respectable rating for a game that's been out this long. Um, And so, you know, this is a game that I was interested in primarily because it was Martin Wallace, and, and anything that Martin Wallace puts out, I'm always interested in. In. um but what was it about this game that uh,
1: appealed to you well initially i think like, like you said I, i've fallen into collecting martin wallace games in general and, and in all honesty when i came around to looking at london it was um mostly the next one on the list to tick off um <laughs> the, the the artwork was well, so i it say it's, it's very good quality artwork but it's not necessarily you know, the most the most exciting or cutting edge um since looking at lots of his other games it's it, his earlier titles, like Steel Driver and such, it uh, holds its own uh, much more so compared to them, maybe. But um, but initially it was just the next one on the list, uh, so I wasn't really expecting a huge amount from it, uh, or than not being in the uh, top twenty material on on BGG. Uh, but as we sort of got got to grips with it over um, a year ago, with uh, the the original dynamics in it, the uh, the new mechanics in it, that I had not seen still in any other game yet. So uh, really helped me.
0: Yeah, I would have to agree uh, wholeheartedly with that. It was something that I was looking forward to because of the subject matter. Um, you know, I am I, always interested in, in things that are based in the UK and in, in particular uh, London. My wife and I were fortunate enough to visit there once. And um, it was kind of neat, you know, when I was kind of flipping through the cards and recognizing some of the places and getting to read a little bit of the designer notes and hearing a little bit more about the history. Um, so it was a game that I was keen on. Uh, and I also was intrigued by it because it was supposed to be doing something sort of new, uh, not really deck building, but kind of tableau building and using Mm. cards in a very interesting way and also kind of setting up some competition for cards in in interesting ways with the way the cards kind of cycle through the game. So uh, those are the kind of things that kind of interested me. And then, you know, the board was kind of in there as well. And, it you know, it it definitely is a very important part of the game, but the heart of the game really seemed to be the card play. And that was something that I was really interested in at that time. And it's something I'm still interested in as well. So, um, you know, perhaps Chris for people who are not uh, familiar with this game could you maybe uh, take a moment and give sort of a, a general rundown of um, sort of how the game is played you know the basics the the kind of basic mechanisms of
1: it. Okay well uh, thematically it, it starts off uh, rebuilding the City of London after the Great Fire uh, 1666 uh, and so we're, we're doing that basically by um, you know, each player trying to take their stake in forming the new city. Uh, we are Generally, card-based. Um, most actions based around collection or and playing of cards, uh, and we're building up over over a period of turns uh, a, a range of um, cards in front of you, building your own city, your own portion of the city, uh, which will be made up of cards for um, industries and monuments and uh, political establishments, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, building them over a number of, number of turns. Uh, in line with gathering uh, physical geography in the city. So that, that's where it does link back to being the board game uh, with a geographical spatial element of uh, collecting various areas on the board which are used primarily uh, to get you uh, uh, more cards as the game goes on. Uh, one of the most um, interesting, to say, that one of the key things I, I found with the game is that um, of the four pretty basic actions you've got, um, so two of them uh, are basically uh, buying the boroughs and uh, playing cards to your city, uh, are built around sort of slowly building up the city, um, putting on some in- interesting action cards that you want. You've then got this third action of, of actually running the city, and that's when everything, um, all, all hell breaks loose, and you're throwing around <laughs> victory point tokens, money, and poverty cubes that we've got. Um, uh, trying to say balance off the uh, quite, a, a, quite a number of different uh, point scoring and point losing um, functions in the game.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for that uh, overview, because that is, uh, it's a, a great summary of this idea of the three basic things you're going to do in the game. And I like that the sort of district that you're building in the city as London is being rebuilt, um, you're going to kind of, Uh, get to pick and choose not only the types of things that you want to do. You know, you mentioned things like monuments and and businesses and whatnot. And businesses, for example, are great for making money, but they can also, you know, create other problems for you and poverty and things of that nature. Uh, But then you also have uh, the opportunity to kind of build uh, almost like infrastructure cards, bridges, um, prisons, Um, you know, uh, all of these kinds of different uh, sorts of cards that are also going to have different benefits for you. And every card seems to be sort of centered around either giving you income or... Um, perhaps uh, giving you the ability to use a card more than once um, as we'll talk about in in a few moments Mm. Uh, when you run your city you kind of flip your cards they kind of are used up if you want to think of it that way Uh, I prefer to think of it as um, they're up and they're running and they're doing their thing and there's really nothing more you need to concern yourself with Um, you know that that, uh, the East India docks are are working you know so uh, that they've run and and they're going to continue to run but that sort of initial boost to your income uh, uh, is gone, um, but there are cards that will allow you perhaps to um, you know keep one of those active so that you can gain the benefit more than once. Um, there's the the wonderful omnibus cards which will give you sort of constant income, and then there's uh, cards that are going to create poverty. Um, And, you know, poverty, I think, is kind of abstracted. It's not just poverty, but also crime, uh, things of that nature. And then there are cards that will combat that, okay? There's kind of public works cards uh, that are going to reduce... Uh, your poverty. Uh, there are uh, cards that are meant to kind of combat that. And by building up sort of beautification areas of your city that will sometimes, like, um, you know, the Kew Gardens and things, these are things that will also kind of reduce that uh, poverty, crime sort of thing. But everything is, uh, you know, going to cost you. And the thing that I like about this is, is the sort of dual economy of the game because um, a lot of the cards, when you activate them, perhaps, they're, they, they're going to cost you money. However, um, there's also a cost when you play the card because in this game, the cards are kind of color-coded. Yes, Chris? So we have like brown and blue and pink and some gray cards, which are kind yeah. of like
1: almost... Quite, quite where those, where those uh, color choices came from, I'm not sure. But, no, uh, <laughs> no, neither am I,
0: <laughs> but especially the pink. But anyway, mm. um, yeah, so uh, when you want to play a card to your tableau in front of you, You play a card from your hand, but then you are forced to discard a card of the same color to this central display that is half of the main board of the game. And that display is fair game for every other player sitting at the table. And so... I might discard a card to play, um, what is it, like this? The sewers card, which is going to be very helpful in kind of cleaning up poverty, okay? But in order to play that blue card, I have to discard another blue card. And what that means is sometimes the choices are really difficult because, number one, you want them both. You know, there's, there's two cards here that I really want to help me with poverty problems. I want the street lights card and I want the sewers card, but I'm gonna have to give up one of them and go for the other. And then I have like more decisions to make because like the sewers card is a one shot, very powerful, but the street lights can help me sort of in perpetuity. It's a card that doesn't necessarily flip as I described earlier once you've activated it, but it does cost you money. And so, hmm, you know, do I have enough money to do the things that I need to do? And, of course, with every Martin Wallace game, there's always the opportunity for you to get into crushing debt. So <laughs> there's always that. So
1: Wouldn't be uh, the same without it.
0: <laughs> no, it wouldn't, would it? So um, there's this delicious kind of tension as you have to kind of figure out, what card do I want to play? What card am I willing to give up? And sometimes it's like a gamble because you could give that card up and then later you can, re- you can pick it up again. Um, yeah. But sometimes you put it out there And then your opponent grabs it, and you're like, dang it, you know, I I was really hoping, you know, for that card. Or I needed that card to build yet another blue card, Mm -hmm. and I took a chance by discarding it. And so there's a lot of decisions to be made in that personal tableau building. And there's also a lot of decisions to be made, I found, Chris, with deciding how big you want your city to be, Your, your district. You know, I've seen people run with only five or six cards in their display and I've seen people do 10 or 11 and there's a whole host of different strategies and opportunities for you in this game so you know those are the things that really kind of hooked me gameplay wise from the moment that I really started playing it what would you say would be analogous for you what were the things that kind of hooked you when you first started playing London
1: I think, like I said, it, it it's the, the, this action of running the city, where you're you're taking quite a lot of time to build up build up your city, get these actions, and you you you're trying to individually decide whether you want to play um, play one card versus the other, and try and work out well is is five getting five pounds in worth uh, the equivalent of losing a couple of poverty points and things, but you're making these fairly small scale decisions as you as you're building the city. Uh, but then to to, to then sort of break that game to feel like you're breaking it into quite a number of different segments when you're running the city in action that you'll do four three four times uh, throughout the game and have such an upheaval in in the gameplay and uh, and suddenly see everything really springing to life uh that that was really the thing that did, did catch me
0: yeah it's an interesting kind of a slow build right and then all of a sudden everything happens at once, as you described, you know, and the other thing that I found really interesting about this, Chris, is that uh, when you run your city, and for those who aren't familiar with the game, what this means is, you know, on your turn, you are going to pick a card from the display, Um, you you know, you you have to take card from the display, you then can uh, choose to uh, play cards in front of you, or you can choose, uh, and you can do as many as you want, like if I have, you know, eight cards in my hand, if I've planned well, I might be able to put four cards out in my district, you know, um, as long as I have the cards to discard that I need, I could put four cards out in one single turn, you know, I can have this massive turn and really surprise people, or I can forego that, and I can, as you said, buy some real estate, where are all these buildings going to be built, Where are they going? Oh, well, they're going right across the Thames, um, you know, in in this district. And so it it really is kind of an an interesting thing. When you build up uh, districts in the city, when you kind of purchase the real estate, as you so aptly called it, um, you usually uh, you're going to have a benefit of drawing cards. um, But then the. Number of buildings that you've kind of put in districts around the map of London also is a poverty reduction. It's kind of like you've built housing, you've kind of built things to help people, you know, give people a place to live, people are now not uh, looking for a place to live because so much of the city was destroyed in the fire, um, Mm -hmm. and that's going to help out. And so when you run your city, some of the poverty that you're supposed to accumulate, you kind of can, I don't want to say clean it, but you can can get rid of it because you have built up areas of the city and people now have a place to go and a place to live. And so that's another like really interesting (coughs) sort of a balancing act that I found with this game because if you ignore the city completely or, or you, you you don't really pay too much attention to it you're you're not going to be able to pull it off more than likely but at the same time if you only focus on accumulating money and buying real estate you're you're not going to gain all of those opportunities to get victory points by running your city which can be quite substantial mm-hmm. um, districts in the city that you build um, the real estate part of it, is worth victory points and they can be worth substantial victory points but those are only awarded at the end of the game whereas when you run your city you're going to be able to accumulate at least in my opinion uh, a larger amount of victory points more quickly and you know potentially over and over again depending on how you've set yourself up so i like that amount of player control that's something that that i always kind of found fascinating
1: um yeah, and, and you've got that decision point about when you're going to run the city. Uh, as you said, you're you're taking the, um, uh, the poverty points for doing so. I guess thematically you're saying each time you run the city, you're becoming more successful. Uh, therefore, more people come into the city. Therefore, maybe you get that sort of overcrowding again, potentially to fill up mm-hmm, the areas mm-hmm. you've got. Uh, therefore, you take more poverty as, as a result of it. So you can be, um, I think probably from, from the thematic sense, a victim of your own success in some regards and, <laughs> hammer yourself and getting too much poverty by trying to run your city too often. So you've got that balancing act um, uh, to to not want to run it too much when it's going to be inefficient to do so.
0: Right. And one of those efficiency points that, again, I I found really brilliant about the design is the fact that when you run your city, uh, there will be cards in your display that will uh, sort of help get rid of poverty. There will also be cards that will give you poverty. But then you also have to take into account that any cards that you have in your hand that at, at the moment that you run your city are going to give you poverty points. So as a designer, he's kind of rewarding you for being very efficient and and really kind of not trying to run your city so often when you still have this handful of cards. Like he doesn't it's almost like he didn't want you to hoard cards you know, like underground cards. Uh, there are cards that will come up later in the game that uh, represent the beginning uh, building of the London Underground. And, you know, those cards can be worth quite a bit in terms of scoring. And as a way, I think, to kind of keep people from hoarding uh, lots of valuable cards in their hand or denying them from their opponents by holding them, it kind of forces you to either put them out or discard them. Um, or, you know, use them, because if you run your city with a large hand, you're actually kind of shooting yourself in the foot, yes?
1: Yeah, and it's a great feeling when you can uh, exactly use up all your cards, uh, especially when you're using the prisons or some such, (laughs) or workhouses, and you're deliberately anticipating uh, needing to throw away three, four, five cards, so you're carefully building up a hand, knowing that exactly when you finish running your city, you'll have to expend every single card in your hand, and you're left, left with an empty hand. It's a good feeling.
0: Yes, it is, because it, it's kind of rewarding of that planning, you know, and that's one of the things that I really enjoy about the game is that it does seem to reward uh, careful planning. Um, that being said, though, would you say that this game is more tactical in nature or more strategic in nature, and why?
1: Well, uh, generally, I'm, I'm kind of more of a, uh, a tactical player, um, which is probably more of an admission rather than a, an, an opinion. Uh, I'll, I'll generally try and play with what's in my hand uh, and, and go go with it from that perspective. Uh, but I, I find I, I play a lot with with my uh, fiance, and we'll often find that we have different styles of play in us in our own um, hands. I I will uh, tend to concentrate on poverty, and so always be looking for all the cards with the white cubes on, and try and minimise that, hoping that she doesn't notice that I'm I'm whittling away my poverty cubes. <laughs> uh, whereas she'll often end up with quite an imposing stack of little point tokens next to her, uh, so clearly there, there, there is, there's visibly you can see a strategy and a preference for a certain gameplay able to come out and will remain competitive despite having very different styles of game.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very important point that you raise. Um, is that there are very divergent approaches that I have seen win. Uh, you just mentioned one. Um, you know, hey, uh, keep keep run a clean city. Um, You know, try not to accumulate poverty. And the other side, you know, flip side of that is don't worry about it right now because if I can make more points and I'm going to lose at the end of the game, I don't really care. Um, You know, sort of the ultra-capitalist kind of view of things. Um, Because at the end of the game, what we haven't mentioned yet, Chris, for people who might not know, is that uh, if depending on the number of poverty cubes that you have accumulated, you're going to lose a certain amount of points. The more poverty cubes you have, the more punishing the hit is going to be. However... Uh, Everybody has to kind of look at their poverty cubes simultaneously at the end of the game. And whoever has um, the least poverty, if I'm remembering this formula right, they get to discard all of their poverty. Mm -hmm. And everyone else gets to discard that amount as well, um, if I'm remembering correctly. And then whatever you're left with, you're left with. And so if I've got five, but you've got 15, heaven forbid, uh, I'm going to get to wipe mine out at the end of the game, but you're going to be left with 10. And then there's a nice little handy-dandy chart because Martin Wallace can't have a game without charts or tables on the board. <laughs> and there's a handy-dandy chart that will tell you what kind of smack you're going to get uh, right across the face for having that much poverty left over. Yeah, However, and it, and, it,
1: and it, it, it really compounds, uh, compounds that... Every poverty point you have over 10 more than the other player uh, is it from 10 or from 12? You're mm-hmm. then taking an extra three, lo- losing three victory points for every single cube you've got. Whereas one or two difference, so, uh, yeah, if you've got one or two cubes, you're only going to lose one single point. Uh, so it, it really ramps up and um, sort of exponentially uh, in some regard. Uh, so it really punishes you. I think the other, uh, the other. Points objectives you've got, whether you're looking at loans or victory counters versus mm. uh, the boroughs, yes. they, they they kind of have a linear balance against each other. But the poverty cubes, if you if you ignore them, you really will get absolutely destroyed when it comes to totalling up at the end.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, you're right. They do kind of uh, exponen- exponentially increase. I don't know mathematically if that's totally true, but it sure <laughs> feels simi- that it's way. It's similar to that, isn't it? It's similar. <laughs> it's like a doubling thing or something of that nature. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely something that you have to keep an eye on. But that being said, I have seen people win with a relatively high amount of poverty If they were able to run their city enough, get enough real estate, and just focus on getting a huge stack of victory point chips um, and perhaps not taking loans and things of that nature, I've seen people win with that. Not very often, but I have seen it. Um, You also brought up the other strategy that I kind of wanted to talk about, which was the (coughs) land grab strategy. Um, This is kind of my preferred method. I mean, one of the first things I do usually is take a loan for 40 pounds. I just immediately take a loan and i spend a lot of time trying to grab good real estate in the city that's going to give me um a a decent amount of cards but I'm actually usually more concerned with higher victory point payout at the end. And this is an interesting little balance that he has in the game as well, because most of the sort of areas in the city where you're going to buy real estate, if you get a lot of cards, you get few victory points. If you get few cards, you get a lot of victory points. Mm. And since cards is kind of the currency of the game play, that can sometimes be a tough decision to make. Um, However, I try to position myself right away, get some real estate. Uh, This is going to help me with my poverty problems for the rest of the game so to me that's like my preferred strategy and I also try to get myself set up um, usually on one side of the river or the other waiting for the railroad guard to come up yeah Uh, there's there's some nice cards that once you've played this game and this is something else that I kind of like there are cards that you will grow to anticipate and uh, you know as you play the game you get a deeper understanding of some of these little things like I'm talking about. There are, there are cards that will give you money for however many uh, pieces of land that you've bought, You know, real estate as you're calling it, on the north side or the south side uh, of the board, on one side of the river or the other. And so if you can kind of consolidate your real estate holdings, uh, especially early in the game, on one side or the other – and you know manage to get one of those cards you can actually make yourself a tidy bit of money on a fairly consistent basis especially if you manage to grab yourself uh one of the cards um uh is it shops i'm trying to remember which is one of the cards that allows you uh to keep a card from flipping uh hospital a- hospital thank you yes hospital yeah shops is the one where you just get to put money on it i think constantly
1: yeah, add a coin for every building you put in your um your, your uh, uh display
0: yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, it, just from listening to this little conversation between the two of us, I think people will get a sense out there, Chris, of that the kind of car, uh, card combinations, you know, or it, it's not even so much card combinations sometimes, it's like map card combinations. Like there's Ooh. actually a synergy there that I like.
1: Yeah, and so you, you're mentioning the the train station cards there. Uh, to the, the, there's so much um, subtle the, uh, passing asymmetry in, in the cards and things uh, we 've got i think it 's uh twelve uh, areas above the river, nine below so it 's not, not too far off it, but uh, you have uh, two railway cards for the north section, one railway card for the south section so again you 've got a very big difference there in um, you know if you lo- if you don 't get the one single um, southern railway card you 're not going to be able to capitalize on it whereas you 've got two chances in the north so it 's quite po- common that you 're going to prefer the north possibly based on that strategy alone.
0: So, you know, there's lots of these just fascinating cards, you know, these kind of card combinations, these synergies between the cards that you play in your district and the board and the way they work together. And even some of these cards that we've been talking about that, um, you know, directly interact with other players. Um, There's kind of cards that I have that are my favorites. Um, But, you know, I often kind of wanted to kind of ask because my knowledge of history of England and London in particular I certainly have an interest but I- I'm not a native so I don't know all of these places I don't I, I don't have a familiarity with you know Millbank prison like I kind of know what it does in terms of the game but I'm kind of curious what you would say about we know mechanically how the game works and how the cards work but what would you say about thematically like is this really a thematic game or would you say it's more mechanical
1: well, I think the the Millbank example you give there was uh, it's a perfect one in that uh, in the game you've got uh, you've got two different prison cards. You've got Millbank and Brixton prison, um, and if you're looking thematically, uh, Brixton um, was a much uh, much tougher ca- uh, prison to be in. Uh, generally speaking, uh, Millbank was considered at the time to be a much more modern prison. And uh, in, in uh, Brixton, uh, even at the graphics on the car, the artwork on there, uh, the artwork is um, is prisoners uh, being forced to walk a, a milling wheel uh, th- to thresh corn. Uh, I believe it is uh, the actual graphic in there. Uh, and so you can see th- those two cards, the Millbank Prison, costs five pounds to put down, but gives you more uh, victory points. But both cards work very similarly. You're playing out uh, potentially up to three other cards. Um, expending from your hand, so is a great way to get rid of your entire hand, uh, but, so both cards let you do that, and in exchange you get rid of a poverty point but if if're you're, if you 're well, jailed in the Millbank prison, um, you do at least get victory points for the extra money you 've invested in that establishment uh, and, and that very say, strongly relates back to the fact that Millbank was a better prison. Uh, Brixton would say much more rough and ready. So in, in relation to that, the card isn't nearly as 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 good and isn't nearly as rewarding as it could otherwise be.
0: So so there's actual historical kind of underpinning you believe to not only the names of the cards but how the cards function thematically makes sense to you.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, there's there, there's in the entire game there's only one card that will uh, actively give. Uh, poverty points to you when you play it uh that being the the the, uh, the leather industry uh so that which is a, another sort of interesting card and you say well why it's a card that as as it gives you poverty you you're pretty reluctant to do it but but you get 7 pounds for it uh and an end game point as well um and you, you look at the 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 leather industry how that uh, hangs together uh and you've got people making a, a decent living but unfortunately, spending quite a large portion of their day standing in buckets of urine, um, uh, trying to dehair the uh, the hides and things. So you can see that that poverty point, as, as I would see it, comes back in terms of making you a pretty unpopular person. Uh, <laughs> that, 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 that Tanner isn't going to have many friends, and he's, he's not going to have maybe the best life. So. Right. You, you get a poverty point for it you get that brand new mechanic that just just comes in uh, I think there's two copies of the card in the game I believe but just that one one card name uh, comes and then goes again
0: yeah there there's definitely something very thematic about uh, the kind of punishment that you get for putting the leather industry in a district in your city because you know it's like having a slaughterhouse uh, mm. you know in your district the the, the odor the you know, the things that are going to be coming from there. And it's my understanding that tanning was a particularly noxious kind of mm-hmm. a, uh, a process, not only, uh, you know, from the urine standpoint, but also from the 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 uh, materials and, and uh, the things that were used uh, in in continuing that process and making leather is just uh, terrible, terrible smells. So I imagine that would drive people. You know away or or devalue yeah. your kind of district in the city all the while it's giving you all of this wonderful income because of course people love uh, leather goods so you know it's it's an interesting thematic connection so uh, when we talk about that idea of uh theme versus mechanics you know you it sounds like you feel that this game comes down pretty decently on the thematic side yes
1: Oh, very much so. It, it, can, it can look quite dry, but when you start thinking about what what's happening, why it's happening, uh, it, it just seems to be covered in theme from my perspective. Um, so uh, especially when we're trying to, in, in this, these modern times, get away from trash and call them thematic games, uh, there's certainly no uh, space rockets shooting each other uh, with no Cylons <laughs> here, but, it, but it's very, very thematic. I have no doubt about that.
0: Right, yeah, that's that, that kind of rich historical kind of theme. Uh, there's a there's a card called Schools as well. And this is an interesting card because it gets back to that core mechanic of one of the three things you're going to do on your turn. So could you tell us a little bit about that uh, card? Because I find that to be an interesting one as well.
1: Yeah, it's a very thematic card. As we've said, when you're, when you're playing cards from your hand, you're having to expend a card of the same color uh, out, to the, uh, out to the card display on the, on the physical board itself. Uh, when, you, when you haven't got the cards you want, when you, you want to play a, a blue card but you've got a handful of brown, uh, you, can be, you can be really sort of stuck for options there. And you can play a specific card uh, as a, a couple through the different ages in the deck um, of the school card, uh, which uh, most thematically works well with a, a pauper's card. Um, I don't know if we mentioned paupers' cards before, but as well as having the brown, blue, and pink cards in the game, we've also got grey paupers' cards, which are functionally um, seem to be useless. Um, but uh, certainly on, on the strong thematic side, you can use a school to educate uh, a pauper. Uh, you can actually, you can technically, you can edu- educate St Paul's Cathedral if you want to, which is a bit less thematic. <laughs> but, uh, but but the, the strongest example is educating um, educating some paupers. So you're making, making, taking these useless people, this useless card, and turning them into something useful. So you can pay a bit of money to send them to a school, and they'll then be able to function as, as any colour card. So you've got a, a very thematic, strong way to get out of a sticky situation there, I find. Uh, there's, there's, some, there's some really interesting, uh, specific cards um, that I find, find throughout the game here.
0: Yeah, I would agree. There's, there's quite a few that I really enjoy. There's another one. Uh, is it the Royal Academy? I think there's a, a, a Royal Academy card um, that mm, not is... Not by that name. Um, I, I'm trying to remember. It, it's a card that um, basically means that cards in your hand don't count towards poverty when you run your city.
1: Uh, yeah, Yeah, that's that's a useful one. Again, that's not a card that I tend to go for. It's it's one my fiancé always jumps on. Oh, okay, all right. Again, back to the personal preferences.
0: Right, right. Well, it's a rather expensive card, which is one of the things I think that keeps people uh, kind of away from it because it it is a very powerful card in that you no longer have to worry about that balancing act of, you know, what do I have in my hand? And it can allow you to begin to hoard some cards. So there is a hand limit in the game. Um, You know, you can't just hold everything. But, um, you know, for that power... You are paying a price, and, and it's a rather it's a premium. I think it's like a nine dollar card or something like that. Uh, I don't have it in front of me, unfortunately, but uh, it is rather expensive. And so, you know, there's there's this interesting uh, again sort of logic behind the cards that he puts out in front of you. Uh, you know, want a card that can clean some poverty quickly? Uh, it either has no cost or very low cost. Want a card that's going to allow you to do that all the time, you know, to sort of reduce your poverty? Uh, you're going to have to pay for those street lights to keep, you know, the streets lit, uh, you know, keep people safe in the streets, cut down on your crime, uh, make people feel safe, and, and you know, uh, that's going to cost you. You know, that's not something that you're going to be able able to do um you know for free uh, so i like the kind of uh, cost reward ratio that he set up in the game because as you said you know some people would look at a card like that and they're like ah, i don't want to invest in that um as a matter of fact a lot of the sort of the blue cards which tend to be um public structures or monuments and things of that nature uh they tend to be rather expensive um but they're almost like buying victory points yes
1: yeah, certainly, yeah, and th- th- there are so many ways to uh, to, to uh, define what the cost of a card is, but uh, yeah, certainly with the blue cards, uh, science and culture, uh, generally sort of based around that sort of uh, thematic.
0: Right, uh, you know, this game also in the cards has a little bit of uh, take that, which is kind of unusual for um, this style of game. This style Ooh, of game yeah. sounds like it's very multiplayer solitaire but it's really not and there's there's two ways that i can think of um first of all there are uh, cards that you can play. Like For example, I'm thinking of the police card. Uh, the police card is kind of you know, oddly funny, at least to me, in a sad kind of a way. Uh, if I play the police card, I'm basically going to get to take some of my poverty and push it to someone else. It's almost yeah. like I use the police force to like round up all of the troublemakers and you know, told them, like I don't care where you go, but you can't stay here. And so now all of a sudden, Chris has a problem with poverty because I've just given two or, or however many poverty cubes to him that card played late in a game can be really mean Um, there's also the meanness of the card display and that's because the card display is not infinite and there is a progression as far as when you play these cards when you discard cards to build a building um, they go into the display in a certain fashion and if uh, a condition is met they're going to flush And uh, could you kind of talk a little bit about that kind of card cycling sort of system that's set up on the board, Chris?
1: Well, yeah, as you're paying for costs of cards, uh, to put them into your city, you're you're, uh, by default, again, a game which is full of exceptions to these little rules. And and these exceptions come along in text on the card, so it's all very easy to deal with. Uh, But but generally, you're, you're paying the same color card in order to put a card down. So that card has to go uh, onto onto the board. You've got uh, a row of um, uh, two 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 rows of cards uh, spaces, uh, which will be varies between player count. Two player, you're playing three cards per row, up to five cards in a row for the four player game. Uh, You always always uh, expend cards to the top row if possible. Then you expend to the second row if possible. But if you can't expend to the second row because that's also full then that whole top row of cards, all the good things that are on that, maybe something that your opponent wants, uh, something that, that maybe you want to get back, will suddenly disappear. Uh, so it, it, you, you can try to almost put play, take cards off the top just to expand them on the bottom, just to make sure they stay in the game longer for when you're ready to play them.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting strategy that took me a while to figure out. (laughs) I was always not thinking about where I was putting the cards when I discarded Mm. them and then being really mad when they all went away. And uh, finally, my wife was like, "Um, you know, you could like put that here. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I never really thought of that. But again, it's another point of interaction in the game, isn't it?
1: It's on the indirect side. Yes, it can be... uh... Uh, a, a real fun way to try to get rid of the cards that they want. Because you, if you you could potentially put down, uh, through normal gameplay, you have a start off with a hand of nine cards, pick up one card at the start of your turn, you could possibly get five cards down in your in your go. Uh, so from that point, you're then going to have to play five cards on, onto the tableau. So you, you can have a card in your hand that you know they want. Uh, we said the example earlier of the train station. So the, the, a single uh, South train station card... Uh, you know they want it, and you've got no property uh, to hand uh, on the board in the south. Uh, but you know if you put that card down, they're going to jump on it. But uh, if you're about to use that as your first of five cards, by the time you expend your fifth card on, onto the player display in order to play that fifth building into your, your own personal uh, card display, uh, the card that they want, you're going to be able to push that straight out of the game and they can, they can w- watch it sail past their eyes as, <laughs> as it as it heads off into the discard pile
0: yeah you make that sound so mean, and it is i like that
1: <laughs> well it, it it's an indirect meanness so like you said with the police force and um and and the fire brigade which is an, another sort of a way to, to, to something resembling an attack card um uh like i said you wouldn't necessarily expect to see these attacks and and they're not they don't initially seem that thematic when you think about what a fire brigade does these days, what a police force allegedly does these days. Um, on paper, uh, but again, you map that back to thematics, and yeah, you have the, the taxes for uh, whether you want the fire brigade to put your fire out or not, keep keep your house safe. That's going to cost you and things. So, uh, yeah, so they're, they're the ind- uh, more direct attacks, as you'd see them, but there are plenty of sort of uh, very frustrating ways to uh, to niggle away and then and frustrate your opponents, uh, and, and know that they will get really annoyed when you, when they see they and never had a chance to get that card.
0: Right, and, and that's something that I find is it's of great value to me because of exactly as you described it. I mean, I couldn't have said that any better because you, you can hold a card in your hand until you're in a position to push it out of the game because these cards are not going to be reshuffled and put back into a draw pile. Um, it, it, that doesn't happen. And so once you kind of learn some of these cards that are in the game you can actually actively come up with a plan to thwart your opponent by getting that card just completely out of the game. And that's something that I always really liked about it. Um, So we we talked about how this game is is not multiplayer solitaire. You do have to be uh, very aware of what your opponents are doing what kind of buildings they're building in their tableau, what their general overall strategy seems to be. And there's actually some direct kind of uh, interaction, as we just described. One of the knocks, though, against this game that I've heard, and I'm curious you know, what you would say about it, is that because of the fixed nature of the deck and the cards that, you know, people, uh, I've, you know, kind of heard claim that the game can get kind of samey or it it can become uh, almost scripted, you know, based on, as you said earlier, like the player preferences. Do you find that to be, is there any truth to that or do you think that's just bunk?
1: I think there probably is truth. Um, I think that as I've been sort of learning the game, it's come to my attention that in some ways we've not been playing quite the same way other people have been. Um, We've sort of uh, had some home uh, house rules that we haven't really realised were. Uh, every time I reread a, a Martin Wallace rule book, I, I find something that wasn't quite how we've been playing it. Um, uh, but so to that extent, that's, um, that puts us in a situation where, for example, we would not buy uh, boroughs if, if we didn't have capacity in our hand uh, limit of nine to, to take those cards. Uh, so we'd often have to make much uh, more tougher decisions about the cards we did have. Uh, whereas we have other strategies um, uh, that we see about you know, buying buying property, just it, primarily just to improve the quality of the nine cards you can have left in your hand at one turn. We said earlier that the uh, the pauper's cards are, are broadly useless, so uh, you, you might want to go and buy uh, a borough purely to get some cards to get you know pairs of same of card, same color cards ready for when you want to play them. Uh, and in doing so, you just can quite casually chuck away the cards you don't want. Uh, and, and as that's not been the way I've, I've been playing the game generally, uh, again, in my sort of tactical view of gameplay as a whole, uh, just pick it up and have fun with it. Uh, th- that's not been, a, not been something that's happened in our games. And I think that possibly, that, that probably would, I'd imagine, make, make it more, more scriptable. Maybe not scripted, but you'd have more opportunity to, to keep churning through cards until you get that one you wanted.
0: Right, yeah, that's an excellent point. And uh, I also uh, I have to give you now credit for a new gaming term, which is unintentional house ruling. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a Martin Wallace effect, the unintentional house rule. Yeah, Didn't really mean to, but it just kind of happened.
1: <laughs> well, I, I, doing, doing research for this show, I've been digging through the forums and things, and um, so many of the problems that people have been citing with the game uh, and talking of you know a, a second Halifax Hammer um, and the various fun names they've been making for for that sort of prov- uh, barbara-buying um, tactic. Uh, the, the, the pure nature we've been playing the game, all the things they've been complaining about, we've never been able to exploit in the first place. So it's, right. it's worked for us quite well from that regard.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that there's an interesting sort of a, a tipping point with a game when you, you have a game like London where you, when you learn the game and you get experience with the game and you have foreknowledge of what could be coming your way and you've played enough to develop some kind of overarching kind of strategies and you've played with other players and you know, as you said, what their preferences are, um, there, there comes a point where a game either proves that it can withstand that repeated play without getting stale. Or it becomes almost entirely a scriptable affair. And, you know, I kind of think about uh, a game like Puerto Rico where, you know, there are people who will tell you in no uncertain terms that there is a right move to make. There is a correct way to play the game. And to me, I worry about that because then what that means is someone has kind of essentially solved it. Maybe not a Halifax Hammer kind of accusation as, you know, this game is broken or something, but that, you know, uh, if someone makes a move in a game and it's not what the uh, general kind of consensus is, is the optimal thing, then people get annoyed. And while I found that London, there are some definite cards and combinations that are very powerful. There are definite board positions that are more beneficial than others, Um, especially with some of the building restrictions that you do have. I I kind of have, have worried about that, but I haven't yet hit that. There seems to be enough wiggle room in the randomness of how the cards are going to flop into the display and the randomness of what people are going to value at each given moment in the game that it keeps it from becoming something that is scriptable. It, It seems like it's something that is going to defy that and withstand that. And based on my plays, I haven't really ever gotten to a point where I felt I know what I have to do in this entire game in order to win it and i'm constantly surprised by others and i constantly am surprised when i find something as well would, would you say that that's matching your experience or no
1: uh yes certainly i'd say it's so easy uh with the decks like you said not being reshuffled uh, to see that that one card you want uh sail past you so um and especially actually with uh, the uh the, the really excellent two-player variant in the game uh, which I think possibly makes it maybe may best with two, maybe from some some regard, um, you, you can't guarantee those cards even potentially being available uh, due, due to the, the way they sort of put an additional card discard sort of uh, sections into that.
0: Well, that's one of the things that I wanted to ask you about because you know you mentioned playing this with your fiance, um, and I wanted to ask you about variants because uh, I know that there are quite a few of those floating about, and I know for my wife and I, the one that we had kind of latched onto. I don't recall exactly which it is. I actually printed it out. It's in the box. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the one where basically you are starting with more poverty, a lot more poverty. You start sure. with a, a large accumulation of poverty cubes, and uh, you can't have more than one omnibus, I believe, uh, in your city. Uh, but other than that, there's really not many restrictions. That's kind of the one that I've used. What, what are the ones that you've looked at, and how do you rate them? Because I, I'm... Surprised to hear you say you think it might be best with two, because I've always felt this is best with three. So I want to hear what you have to say
1: about that. Well, coming coming to it uh, fairly late in the day, to be honest, uh, it was the um, the Ben Luca variant or the was it Ben Zen Luca, as it's a, a completely misnamed variant. bowler accounts, it wasn't Ben or it wasn't Luca uh, that actually <laughs> created the variant. So <laughs> someone's not getting their credit for it. I, I understand, uh, but uh, that that's a variant uh, that I think adds. Basically, it adds in a, a dummy third player, but in such a, a tangential way that I think it works extremely well, helping to um, uh, use up uh, the, the borrowers and the board to sort of reduce that to some extent, to churn through the cards as well. So, so the game doesn't have to stay its welcome as well. Uh, when we first played it pure two player before seeing the variant, it really did drag on with two players just churning through that that deck took a long, long time. Uh, and to now see something between a quarter to a third of the cards um, go immediately into the discard pile, again bringing in that, that randomization and that, that, that chance of taking some blocks of cards completely out of the game straight away, um, more so in the, uh, the first two-thirds of the game as the board gets filled up. Uh, really seen that shine, and um, at the time I was comparing it uh, in my head a lot to Fresco, Um, how familiar with all that I I don't know but you have it in in that game a a very conventional third player that the opposite you you or your partner will take it in turns to move and it always felt so clunky playing that and then uh, sort of uh, as I see it sort of going up in the world to to the Martin Wallace stuff uh, with London you've then got a, a variant which says you know just piggybacking on the uh, the existing mechanics of the game, and just slipping in additional actions that happen outside of a particular player's turn. So when we said earlier about when you fill up the bottom row of the cards on the uh, card display on the board, you will uh, you will the the top card will, will go. Uh, but that 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 still happens in this variant. But you then also say, and when that happens, you'll take a a, a, a third player counter uh, and. and uh, put that into an area as if as if your fictional third player had had bought an area on the board, uh, and then you discard as many cards as would have been accrued from uh, buying that area had, had a normal player uh, bought it. So right. again. You- you build in contention for for land areas. It uh, makes them fill up faster, moves the game along nicely. Um, I, th- I think broadly it'll bring it much more uh, in line with the three-player experience. Certainly, it, it's a three-player that does seem to be optimal, and I think this variant brings it brings the experience for the two remaining players much more in line with that.
0: Yeah, you know, it's uh, as you were talking about it, I was flipping back to the London page and I was trying to find the variant that we always used. Um, but right on the homepage uh, is this uh, two-player variant and it describes yeah. exactly what you said. So it's right there. And one of the things that I would say about this variant as I'm looking at it that I really like is the fact that it is simple. Yeah. You know, I don't have to play another player all that yeah. I ever have to do is place a, a, a neutral building in a city borough uh, which I, I would find deliciously fun because you know if I'm the one getting to place it I'm of course going to put it where it's going to hurt you the most
1: Absolutely. And then... I, I was I was done good and popper the other night with, <laughs> with that as well yeah And again it, it makes you want to be the one that plays that card to flush that line out as well right
0: right uh, but, but, you know, it's a double-edged sword because, as you said, you know, you're immediately going to draw and discard cards from the deck um, that normally would have gone to the player who would have, you know, built in that district. So, as you said, speeds the game along, simulates a third player, no muss, no fuss. Um, when you draw and discard those cards, do you discard them face up or face down, just out of curiosity?
1: Uh, we, we keep generally to keep discard piles face up, but we don't, we don't tend to uh, go through them as such. I got gotcha. you. So yeah, I was just
0: kind of curious like so if you're flipping up uh you know three cards and one of them is that south uh train uh train station card yeah. for example, uh if you're discarding them face down, you wouldn't know whether it's still in the game or not, which could be kind of interesting. But if you mm-hmm. discard them face up, then of course you would see that. Uh and then that's, you know, I think that's again going to be like a uh player preference thing. Some people like perfect information, some don't. Um however, you know, I, I guess my gut would tell me uh, you know, Chris, that since you discard face-up in the game, you probably should discard them face-up as you've just described. So, uh, But but again, yeah. it's it's an interesting question.
1: Yeah, I, I think uh, pretty much any other card in the game, you're going to see uh, with an opportunity to get it or you'll see it with no opportunity to get it. So yeah, I think it, it does make sense to be able to see them if anyone wants to. Uh, but I, I, I'm, I'm quite good at not playing optimally, so um, I probably should pay more attention to the discarded <laughs> cards than we do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah exactly exactly well you know um are there any other kind of uh, uh variants or anything intentional or otherwise <laughs> that you've used that uh you have found particularly enjoyable or you pretty much solidly play with uh either the three four players with the rules out of the box or uh the two-player variant that we just described
1: uh Jim, no ab- apart from the uh, the few mistakes i keep finding i'm making uh to the best of my knowledge it, it's uh playing by those rules um um, I, I didn't realise that you, you could actually uh, play over the top of an existing card. Uh, I thought uh, we'd always seen the um, you have the St. Paul's card that comes early on in the game, and that always seemed to be a very uh, expensive card to to purchase. Uh, to, to, well, obviously, it's literally expensive being £10 to play in the game, uh, but as we as we had been playing it, we, I we always believed that you couldn't. You could only put a new card on top of a card that had been flipped, with the exception of the coffee house as a special ability.
0: Gotcha. Uh,
1: so so yep. to put that to to play down that St Paul's card, knowing that that spot in your city would be completely locked off for the rest of the game, uh, made it a very uh, uh, quite a commitment to do that. So we we're trying to again play the card. Um, Play the card to the road, pull it back, keep it back until you've once you've won the city once, then maybe you go for it. So it's added some more tactics in from that that regard. But um, then we find out that's not meant to be the how you play it.
0: (laughs) Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can overbuild anything uh, that you want to. And uh, whether you've ever activated it or not, if it's got victory points uh, at the bottom of the card that it's going to be worth, you're going to get those victory points regardless. But it does, you know, that is, I agree with you. I can totally understand why you would think you can't do that. Because, you know, how could I build this monument and then put uh, a tannery over it? Like, that, that doesn't make any sense, you know what I mean? And so I totally get why you would think that. And I think perhaps thematically... It it might even make more sense to not have certain cards be able to be built over top of. But as you said, you know, according to the rules of the game as they are, uh, you actually that hundred percent can do that. And so that that's kind of an, an interesting kind of a, a twist as well. So,
1: well we, well, we saw we saw the fact that you, you have the flipping card mechanics. So uh, to that end, not being able not being able to flip the card is is possibly a consequence, as well as not having to flip the card. And so, so it's sort of uh, One's a give and one's a take from not flipping the card over.
0: Right, right. And I mean, that could be something that, you know, I, I would be curious to hear, you know, what Martin Waddles would say about that idea, because that, that is an interesting kind of a notion that I think kind of thematically kinds of, you know, kind of makes sense. While we're talking about these kind of ideas, are there any things in the game that you are kind of disappointed in, like anything that you wish was different or think that could be done better?
1: Uh, apart from a D deck, I think we've got uh, 20, 30 years of more technology. Uh, we can get get some radio masks and things in there. Maybe that would make it more fun to drag it out a little bit longer just a bit.
0: So you actually uh, uh, feel that the game does not play too long
1: not, not with a variants or, or the three player no. I, I do find it that does move along really quite nicely.
0: Yeah, I've always found that as well, but I've heard a lot of rumbling that, you know, some people feel that the game is too long or that it outstays its welcome. So I was curious what you would have to say about that. Um, you know, well, to from, me. From our,
1: from our regard, from, from how we have been playing it, because we've often been uh, playing just two or three cars of the city, we're probably playing longer games than other people, actually. So uh, maybe that just supports how much we have been enjoying it.
0: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I can't really think of anything uh, in particular other than, as you just said, more (laughs) that I I am disappointed in uh, with the game. I, I actually feel that when I look at his more recent work, London to me stands out as just a very, very solid game, like all around um a a lot of his games have been uh, a a little quirky recently you know i'm thinking about games um you know like a study in emerald now you know Mm. don't get me wrong i really yeah i really enjoy a study in emerald but that's a weird game (laughs) um you know and and then he's he's done you know other kind of card games like that terrible doctor who card game like where did that come from i mean that was just that was just awful um uh, you know and and He's kind of been bouncing about a little bit recently, Uh, I'd say in the past five, six years. Um, He still is putting out games that I I really enjoy, but then he's also putting out some head scratchers for me. And London, to me, was just a a super solid design. There there was really no complaints that I had about it. So I was curious whether or not you had any. Um, You know, so... Uh, we've kind of talked about the general strategy. We've talked about, uh, the mechanisms of the game, the gameplay, the things that are kind of unique and interesting. Um, we kind of talked about what hooked us, uh, into this game. Are there any other things that you kind of, uh, you know, feel that you'd like to kind of talk about or share or discuss about this game?
1: I think in general, I think with, with so many of Martin's games, uh, it's built around thematics, uh, informing so many of the uh, the mechanics that we find in the game. Uh, and We see so many individual cards in the game that have a, a mechanic on it that's not replicated anywhere else in, in, in the game at all. Um, and, and the joy of that is ha- having them printed on a card. You don't have to have it in a rulebook anywhere, You just pick up the one card and it tells you, yeah, this card has a completely different rule in it. Like you're playing um, like the Ren card to... Um, Discard the Wren card to play two cities. I believe into your um, into your into your uh, yep. card display. Uh, and again, thematically based on Christopher Wren designing uh, St Paul's Cathedral and such, you have a thematic reason to have that happen. Uh, and I, I probably even on a fairly simple mechanic like that, he probably was thinking of Christopher Wren and, and designed a mechanism to fit him, rather than saying, "I want a card that will let me put two other cards down." Uh, and there's so many things. I think coffee house is a, is, is a great example of a thematic card. Um, so the coffee house, you, you play that into your city um, for free. And when you run your city, you can uh, put uh, another card from the card display on top of it. Uh, so there you've got a fantastic thematic uh, connection there to the fact that where like Lloyds uh, you know, of London and such all grew out of coffee houses. So you had a, a simple establishment, which a businessman would come to use. Uh, And then would would develop into some of the most important businesses uh, in the country, uh, in the city, and ultimately at that time in in the world. Uh, So you have the thematic logic there. Replacing a coffee house with a bank actually does have good thematic sense behind it, not just a quirky mechanic.
0: That's really fascinating because I did not know that. I, I, you, everything you just told me, you just dropped some knowledge on me, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was a very interesting. I did not know that, and so I've always been kind of curious about that card. I've loved the card, don't get me wrong, but I never really understood it, and so uh, I, I appreciate uh, you you sharing that because I'm I'm willing to bet I'm not the only one that didn't know that. Um, so that's very interesting, and I have to agree with you. I mean. One of the things that, that Martin Wallace does is he does manage to get that theme infused. And I think the way you described it, I have to be honest, is probably the best that I've ever heard. Um, and that's not just me uh, kissing up to a, uh, a a new guest. This idea of, I I, 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 I want to try and paraphrase it. I'm trying to remember it because I think it's an important distinction. Uh, from a design standpoint, I want to have a card that puts out that lets you put out two cards at once. Versus, how do I get this famous architect this this person who was so instrumental in rebuilding the city into the game? Mm. and there's two totally different ways of looking at it. That's, that's two completely different mindsets. And as soon as you said it, I, I kind of latched onto to that because I'm like, wait a minute, that, that really makes sense. You, how, else do you do, how else do you explain the virtual link to Birkenhead? I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's yeah. like this, this really happens. This is an actual thing, and I have to find some way to put that in there because that's reality. That was reality. That Mm. was that was important. And so regardless of how painful or tortured it is, I have to have it in there. And I think that you're absolutely right. There's so many uh, different uh, games that he's designed, his kind of historical games, where I think you see that he's like this. This person, this idea must be in the game. And so I don't care what I have to do. It's going to be in there. And, And I really appreciate that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 I just found it. It's made for such so many more interesting games than just monotonously swapping three cubes for four cubes uh, again and again. Um, there are just <laughs> right. so many interesting ways to have these, and, and you end up with a game like Brass, which is which seems insanely not complicated, but contrived. Until you put the theme on it, then all of a sudden you can presume what the rules would be because it makes sense when you put a theme on it.
0: Right, right. And that's where the the theme informs the the mechanics of the game and and really kind of makes it Mm -hmm. something that is uh, going to be enjoyable, but also in some ways understandable as quirky as it might be. Like I think about Tinner's Trail and I think about how much of that game has to do with water. You know mm-hmm. and i never knew that water flooding the tin mines was a problem like it's just it just was yeah. never knowledge that i had and then i heard about all these steam pump technologies that were developed in order to clear the water out of the mines and i'm like that's fascinating like you know, that, that's a really interesting uh, piece of history that is then modeled in the game uh, in a very kind of a, a realistic and engaging, you know, not just a sort of a dry way. It's, it's, it's done in an engaging way. So uh, thanks for sharing that insight about, um, you know, how you look at him as a designer, because that's something new. I've talked about Martin Wallace quite a bit, and that's not <laughs> one I've heard before. So I appreciate that, Chris. Mm. Um, well, you know, uh, you and I are both, uh, I, I think it's safe to say, are, are kind of Martin Wallace fanboys. Um, he, he's Probably had it. things. Yeah, I mean, uh, for those of you listening, Chris sent me a, a picture of his shelf. And on his shelf is like every single just lovingly, perfectly stacked, like just every single Martin Wallace title, you know, that that I think uh, pretty much that there is. I think he's even got God's Playground, I think. Do
1: you so Do you have God's Playground? It, it turned up the day after I took the photo, but I've got that now, Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm currently trying to see if I can grab myself a, a Princes uh, of the Renaissance. I don't know if I'm going to have any luck or not, but uh, that's one I've been trying to get for a long time. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, he's a designer that I think is very unique, and uh, I, I'm looking forward to seeing you know what he continues to do in the future and and i appreciate you taking the time to talk with me tonight about no this great 2010 title uh london
1: no problem pleasure to be here
0: well thank you very much chris i appreciate it and hopefully we'll have a chance to get you on another time maybe to talk about one of those other martin wallace games in your collection i look forward to it And now it's time for a new game review. Join us for a quick look, here on The Long View. So the first title that we're going to be reviewing tonight is another Martin Wallace game. It's called Onward to Venus. Uh, this is a game that was released in 2014. Uh, the artists listed for the game are Greg Broadmoor and Peter Dennis. This is from Tree Frog Games, uh, but then uh, also distributed by uh, Asmodee. And it's for two to five players. And the gameplay time says 90 to 120 minutes. Uh, I would say it probably plays a little bit more quickly than that. Uh, The user suggested ages are 10 and up. Uh, On BGG, it's currently listed as a 7 for the ratings. And the board game rank of 1,485. Now, this is a title that uh, initially... I was not really looking for. Um, I was really kind of pumped about Martin Wallace's Mythotopia when I first heard about that because Mythotopia was the reworking of the engine from a few Acres of Snow put into a multiplayer conflict game, and this was something that I was really, really keen on because I I absolutely loved and still love a few Acres, and. I kind of thought, wow, you know, if I could actually kind of have that sort of game experience in a, in a multiplayer game, that would be really nifty. So, when it came time for me to pre-order, I pre-ordered uh, Mythotopia and kind of took a pass on Onward to Venus. I wasn't familiar with the uh, works of literature that it was uh, based upon, and I thought, eh, you know, now nah, I'll take a pass on this one. I'll, I'll focus on Mythotopia. So lo and behold, a little later on, uh, I end up having an opportunity uh, from Asmodee to take a look at Onward to Venus. And this is also after talking to a few other reviewers, uh, friends of mine, who kind of liked it. I thought, okay... This might be a game that would go over well with my game group, my son, uh, my friend Jim Shaw, who kind of likes uh, some kind of heavier conflict kind of games and not just uh, multiplayer solitaire kind of style of games. And I thought, okay, I'll give this one a shot. So um, Onward to Venus arrived, and I wasn't expecting a whole lot. And I don't know, honestly, how much of my feelings about this game have to do with my expectations and how much has to do with the actual game itself. But I'm hoping after you're done listening to hear me describe the game and talk about the aspects of the game that I really enjoy, um, and maybe some of the questions I have about the game, that you'll be able to form your own opinion about whether or not this would be a game for you. At its heart, uh, Onward to Venus is a kind of a, a logistical style game, I would say. Uh, there are some lovely large kind of tiles that are representing uh, the planets, okay? So we have uh, Mercury and we have Venus and we have Earth and Earth's moon and we have, of course, Mars, uh, you know. Um, uh, and then we also have um, uh, some other tiles that are representing uh, moons of some of the larger gas giants like Titan and, and things of that nature. Uh, and then we also have uh, sort of the the outer sort of belt of asteroids and so you know we we have this nice little um display and there is no board which is kind of interesting what you have are these round tiles of various sizes uh basically depicting uh, you know each of those kind of areas and you arrange them on the table with space in between them in the order that they would appear in the solar system which is kind of nifty so i kind of like that And everything that you do in this game is either going to be on one of these planets or it's going to be around one of these planets. And so... Uh, The object of the game is to score the most points, there's going to be three rounds in the game, and what you're looking to do is you are looking to control the majority of factories and mines on each of these different worlds in order to score victory points that are going to be awarded for position. So if you're in the majority, you might get 12 and second place gets 6, etc. You get the idea. Um, some of the planets are worth a lot of money, uh, uh, not money I should say, victory points. Like Venus itself, I mean the game is named after it. Mars, uh, Earth, and the Earth's moon are both; uh, th- those are all very high-valued kind of targets. Um, whereas as you get further out into the systems and and the the uh, sort of moons of the gas giants and uh, beyond, things are worth a fewer victory points and are a little bit more difficult to get to. And yet sometimes there's not as much competition there. So that's one of the interesting decision points of the game do you play small ball and try to gain these majorities that I'm speaking of on some of the lower sort of valued targets which will uh, accumulate into a nice point total or do you kind of go all in and, and kind of duke it out with your neighbors to go for the large victory point targets of the uh, you know inner planets basically So there's some interesting dynamics in the game uh, among the players because of that. There's also some interesting dynamics in the game because of the distances involved. Uh, In some ways, this game uh, game reminds me a little bit of Perry Rodin, in that you have that sort of display of planets uh, or planetary bodies, and there is a definite kind of movement involved and sort of logistical puzzle that you have to solve, which is, how do I get from point A to point B? How long is it going to take me get there uh, what resources can I bring to bear etc cetera, etc cetera. so um, as you kind of stray further and further from Earth it's going to take you more time and a, a longer kind of investment in order to get where you're going and so there's some logistic kind of decisions that you have to make which I really kind of enjoyed what you're moving about is you are moving about in spaceships and these spaceships can carry, um, troops. All right, so you have ground troops that you can take with you on your spaceships. You need those ground ship uh, those ground troops rather to land on the surface of the planets that you will orbit so when you move you 're moving from around one planet, the orbit of one planet, say uh, Earth, and then moving to uh, Mars or Venus in the orbit of that planet. Once a ship is in orbit, it can offload troops to kind of land on the surface and attempt to sort of, you know, conquer or I kind of also think thematically like sort of set up kind of resources. So, for example, um, there may be a opportunity for a mine on the surface of Mars. And so you take your troops there and you're sending them down sort of your advanced squad to kind of stake out the area, do the initial sort of, you know, uh, exploration and excavation, kind of thinking like the Army Corps of Engineers kind of a concept here. And then that mine will then be staffed by workers who are then going to kind of of you know produce for you so that's kind of thematically the way i kind of tie it in that you're landing troops to take over a mine or you could be landing troops to um you know uh, start up a factory on on venus for example and the factories and the mines are going to be granting you income every turn and income is important because that income is what you're going to use to buy yourself more troops So in addition to the uh, soldiers that you can kind of fly about in your ships, you also have tanks that can be built. Uh, Tanks are kind of heavy hitters. They're uh, sort of double the strength, as you would imagine, of your... Uh, regular combat units, but the difference is is that tanks can only be deployed to the planet where they are. Uh, you can't really move them around unless you have some special um, card play, which I haven't even talked about yet, but we'll get to. Um, some special card play will allow you to move a tank perhaps, but in general, wherever you built that tank, it's going to stay. So tanks can be useful as sort of your shock troops to kind of go in there and take over a, a particular region. So all of this is basically happening where you're flying about, you're assessing what's available on these different planets, and then you're landing your troops and trying to take over, if you want to think of it that way, or build this kind of infrastructure that you're then going to use to gain uh, income, and you're going to gain in prestige, which is going to give you control of those planets, depending on uh, what you've built on the planets or taken on the planets, and that's going to lead to your final score. So where do these mines in these factories and whatnot come from? Well, at the start of each of the three rounds, you are going to seed each of these locations that you have. Um, I don't want to say on the board, but on the table. Each of those locations is going to be seated with tiles that you randomly draw from a bag. And the tiles come in a few different varieties. So you have tiles that depict um, factories. You have tiles that depict mines. Well, you also have tiles that depict, um, uh, funnily enough, a big game, you know, and it kind of shows this strange, weird-looking creature, right? And so the big game tiles are like sort of trophy hunting. You know, I'm going to go get myself the uh, rare Venusian stag or (laughs) whatever, right? And so if you go to that planet uh, in one of your spaceships and you land a troop there, uh, you can kind of gain that trophy. And so, you know, those trophies are worth points at the end of the game you also have crisis tiles that will pop up. And the crisis tiles are a really interesting sort of dynamic because what they represent and reflect is sort of a growing discontent uh, with the indigenous populations of these planets or perhaps with uh, aliens who are becoming aware of you know what people are doing and perhaps they're going to come and invade. And the crisis tiles are kind of distributed on the planets when they pop up and if the players don't deal with them. what's going to happen is at the end of each of these three rounds, you're going to sort of assess the planets, you're going to look at these crisis tiles, and depending on how many crisis tiles there are and sort of what the threat level of them is, uh, which can sometimes be added to by this nifty kind of die rolling mechanic, which we'll get to in a moment, um, then bad things are going to start happening to good people, okay, so, uh, you know, one threat token or counter might not really do much, but, you know, a couple is, you know, then you're going to have the robot uprising on Earth, for example. Example, um, or you could have, you know, the Martian revolt, or you know, there's these different kinds of things uh, that could happen, which are going to, you know, damage your interests and your holdings, of course, on those planets, perhaps. So, you know, you're going to lose mines and factories and whatnot. Uh, you might end up, uh, you know, having uh, troops lost. You could end up with a monetary loss. You know, you're losing some money. Um, All of these things could happen if you let things get out of control. So one of the things that you have to do when you kind of cruise around uh, the system here is you occasionally have to try to deal with these crisis tiles, which can lead to another interesting facet of the game, which is a little bit of negotiation. Because if both uh, me and, uh, you know, another player, say Lloyd, we're both kind of heavily invested in Mars and there's going to be this, uh, you know, these conflict tiles are accumulating and we're worried that it's going to trigger uh, the nasty effects of kind of the uprisings um, then he and I kind of have to discuss well who's going to take care of this crisis tile because taking care of a crisis tile usually will gain you a victory point for taking care of it but a victory point in this game is nothing compared to the nine that you're going to get for having controlling interest in the planet so therefore it's kind of like a little bit of a a negotiation game here like who's going to take care of this or you know well if you don't take care of it Lloyd you're in first place it's not going to hurt me uh as much as it's going to hurt you and you know you probably should take care of that yourself well if i take care of this one here you're over there with me on mars and you know i'll kind of deal with mars if you deal with venus and so sometimes there's even some negotiation involved which is kind of nifty to avoid the effects of these unrest kind of tiles that are going to accumulate possibly on planets Another type of tile that can come out is what's called a conflict tile. And these conflict tiles are going to invite actual open, you know, competition and beating each other up uh, with players at the table. So if a conflict tile uh, pops up on a planet where I have a mine and I have two factories, well, what that means is if I leave those undefended, if I don't have any um, assets, meaning ships or troops in orbit, if I don't have any assets on the ground, then basically uh, anybody, you know, Carter could just fly over there and offload one troop and take it. From me. Um, So normally you can't just take stuff from each other and you can't attack each other willy nilly. But when those conflict tiles come out, that's actually going to give you the opportunity to kind of punch each other in the nose. And so that opens up kind of a a dimension that I really appreciated and was kind of not expecting because, you know, it kind of looks like a euro after all. Well, the conflict tokens kind of open up that possibility, which is really kind of nifty. And it also forces you. To use some of your resources to garrison the worlds where you are heavily invested. So, you know, if I have two mines and a factory on Mercury, I'm probably going to garrison it with a tank or two or something there, uh, in in you know anticipation of perhaps a conflict tile coming out later, and I really have to protect that. Uh, if I don't protect that, then Carter, who also has one mine and one factory on that planet, could easily swing the majority by taking over. Uh, you know say perhaps my mind so the conflict tiles really open up another really kind of interesting sort of element to the game and then there are also tiles that are going to give you just kind of one-shot bonuses like you get to draw cards or something of that nature so if you land a troop you get to draw some cards so let's talk about the cards the game is uh has a a big shared deck of cards and this deck of cards is really kind of fun because the cards are basically there to provide either bonuses to your movement or bonuses to your uh military strength your attack value Uh, or something of that nature, and there are these wonderful little illustrations of these, like, kind of cool retro, like, 1920s, 30s, whatever, ray guns, you know, and the names of them, some of them are just absolutely hysterical, Um, and just a, a lot of fun, and the artwork is fun, And they're going to uh, be cards that you're going to be drawing into your hand, and the cards are going to allow you to uh, add to your combat value when you go to try and take over something. So remember how I said you can sort of uh, set ships around a planet, and if there is a mine there, you know, you can try to land some troops to take over the mine. Well... That all works through card play and dice rolling, which is another kind of thing that I was pleasantly surprised by, because Martin Wallace has used dice a couple of times now. He's used them in aeroplanes, which I've kind of liked uh, quite a bit. I I think that's kind of an underappreciated game. And he's also using them here in this game. And so what happens is um, every tile that is an asset, say like a mine um, or a threat token, um, you know, those kinds of things are going to have a numerical value printed on them. It could be two, three, four, five, what have you. And that kind of represents the inherent strength of that particular tile, that particular thing that you're you're looking to sort of uh, conquer or take over or begin or however you want to look at it thematically. Um, and then what you're going to do is you're going to commit troops, ships, tanks. If you happen to have them there, you can build tanks on a planet where you have a factory. You're going to commit those assets to taking that over. Uh, tanks have two firepower. Troops have one. Uh, your spaceships themselves can land and take part in the battle. Uh, but then, of course, you're losing the ability to move around you know, with that ship, at least until the reset phase, which we'll discuss in a moment. So you kind of add up your military value. And, you know, if it's more than the target tile, then you win, right? Well, no. Because for a little bit of element of uncertainty there, a little bit of element of excitement, what he has is he has a die rolling system. So there's three dice that you're going to roll. And the dice basically have um, numerical values on them uh, from one to six. And there's uh, also kind of like this, this skull face, which is kind of like a zero. And so what's going to happen is when you go to try to deal with the threat tile, when you go to try to take over a mine or or what have you, you're going to roll those three dice. You're going to take the highest die value, and you're going to take the lowest die value, and you're going to keep those, and you're going to toss out the middle die value, okay? And the difference between the high and the low is going to be added to the strength of the target tile So you are going to have to then match that strength. So this becomes very challenging because if I roll a 2 and a 6, the difference is 4. And so the tile originally had a strength of 3. Well, now it's at a 7. So I'm going to need a whole lot of troops and a mess of ships if I'm going to try and take that over. Well, that's where the card play comes in, because you're going to have a hand of some cards, and you can discard those cards, basically as many as you want, to try to uh, alter the outcome of the battle, so... You're going to have that that you're going to be able to get to add. The other interesting thing is that skull face on the dice. When you roll a a die result that includes a skull, the skull counts as a zero. So if I roll a skull, a three, and a five, I'm going to get rid of the three. I'm going to keep the skull and the five. But the difference there, because the skull counts as a zero, is five. So five plus three, now I'm all the way up to eight. In addition, for every skull face that I roll, I have to lose one of my troops. So basically what happens is, all right, I might be successful with some card play at taking over that mine, but I'm going to have to sacrifice and return one of my units because they they were destroyed in, in the operation. So uh, that's really kind of an interesting thing. And the excitement that this little die system uh, adds is really kind of palpable and quite a lot of fun. Uh, I remember one time, it was a real long shot for me, late in the game to try to take over uh, a, a, a factory of another player. And when you're trying to take over another player's factory, you're going to roll those dice as well. And that's going to be added to whatever defensive value that they had in, in terms of their own troops and, and whatnot. So I really it was really a long shot for me. I I needed there to be a total of 2 or less in order for me to do it, which is really hard to do. I mean, you'd have to roll uh you know pretty darn decently. I rolled triple sixes. Well, throw the middle die out, I got a 6 and a 6. The difference between the two is 0, so guess what? I was able to get it because I rolled really well. So there's a little bit of luck involved there. But the luck to me is kind of mitigated by that middle die and this die mechanic, because in general, you're going to have results that are like four, five, and six. Like You should just anticipate those, because when throwing out the middle die, you're usually going to have a high and you're usually going to have a low. But there are those wonderful kind of rare moments in the game when the stars align and everything goes your way, and you're able to kind of secure something uh, for a really, really reasonable kind of price in terms of your own resources and troops and whatnot so That's a really nifty uh, mechanic. So some of the other cards are going to give you uh, extra actions. They're going to give you extra sort of bonuses. Um, They're they're just all sorts of really kind of fun cards. And all players start off with a a few cards themselves and you have the opportunity to add cards as you go and land on planets and you get to kind of draw cards and and things of that nature. So that's those tokens that go out on the planets. Some of them are, are card draw tokens. And sometimes those are Incredibly valuable because you know you get some wonderful cards in your hand, and you know you're, you're doing awesome. Or you get the little stupid pew pew you know laser gun that only gives you a bonus of plus one, and you're like, oh my gosh, you know this thing's terrible. So really kind of fun thematic in the cards. The names of the cards are particularly thematic and hilarious. Um, the overall mechanisms of the game, like am I am I taking over a mine? Am I uh, am I Taking the mine over from the Martians, or am I scouting the mine like I originally described? It's a little iffy. You know, I don't know exactly where the theme is. Maybe if I had read the books um, that it's kind of based on, the stories that it's based on, I would have a clearer image. But as a person who didn't have that advantage, um, I still kind of feel the theme, I still kind of get it, but it's not super strong in relation to why am I landing troops all the time to go and get a mine? You know, what, what what is this mine all about? So I kind of invented that story in my head that I told you earlier. It's kind of like the Army Corps of Engineers going down and, and starting it up and then, you know, standing guard and protecting the assets from the locals or for other hostile people, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there is a narrative there that you can build, but it's not super strong. So I need to, you know, kind of be clear about that. Um, the rest of the game is this kind of wonderful kind of logistical puzzle of where can I go? What can I do? What can I accomplish? Because, uh, basically on your turn, what you're going to get to do is you are going to get to, um, do a couple of actions so one of your actions for example might be build units and when you build units you can build tanks on any world where you have a factory you can build tanks and troops on earth all your troops normally must be kind of raised and produced at earth well then you got to go get them you got to go pick them up you can also build more ships which are quite expensive in the game but they're kind of the way that you get around and kind of the way that you do everything so they're really really important So you could maybe do something like that. The other thing that you can do is move. So you may move from the orbit of one planet to the orbit of another and then move from that planet to the orbit of another. So you can kind of move twice or you can move once and take an action because the other action that you can take is to land on a planet in an attempt to take a tile. So... I can you know, build troops, I can fly and move, or I can land, or I can do this sort of combo thing where you fly from one planet's orbit to another planet's orbit, and then you can also land and try to take something over or put troops on the ground or what have you. So the game rewards efficiency and seems to kind of punish you if you have a long way to go because it's going to take you a while and you're not going to you 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 might be able to get there but then you're not going to be able to land your troops which is going to give other players time to react and perhaps get troops over there as well so there's a lot of interesting decisions to be made based on the movement in this game so not only is it interesting when those tiles come out at the start of each of the three rounds everyone kind of stares at that table and looks and says okay what do I need? What do I need to lock this planet up? Where are there opportunities for me? Because you know, I don't have to win every planet. If I get second place, if I get third place, and I just kind of leech some points here or there, that might be the difference for me. You know, where's those big game tiles? You know, I've watched Lloyd play this game three times, and every time he goes for those big game tiles, they're cheap, they're easy, they're a point of peace. You know some games he's managed to get himself four or five points just in big game tiles. Well, that can be a big deal in this game, so um you know you, you might look around and say well where there's opportunities for more factories or mines, or if there are mines where 's the cheap mines you know where 's the mine that 's only going to cost me two or three to conquer because if I go over there, that mine has a defensive value printed on it of five or six or seven, so you know, there's a lot of decisions to be made. There's a lot of thinking. It's much thinkier than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be just this light kind of go around and blow each other up kind of game. But the the logistical aspects of it, the puzzle solving aspect of it, the um, the the way in which you have to uh, position yourself, move yourself around. Uh, the way you have to garrison things uh, there 's so many things to think about, and then you have these cards that can come out that can completely mess you up. cards that are going to allow your opponent to move even farther um, cards that are going to allow them to take tanks and move them to another planet oh my gosh you 're not supposed to be able to do that um, cards that will allow them to you know bre- uh, 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 break or bend the rules uh, or brand as I was saying <laughs> apparently that 's like my own word now it 's between breaking and bending it's branding the rules so um you have all these really nifty opportunities and things to think about and so at the end of the day i found this game really engaging and like really interesting and my son liked it and lloyd liked it and jim liked it and it it was, it was really kind of refreshing to me. It was very different from some of the other Martin Wallace games that I've played recently. Certainly different from something like A Study in Emerald or uh, Mythotopia or what have you. And I felt that there was just so much kind of direct interaction and other elements to this game that I really kind of found myself enjoying it. And so maybe it was, I'll go back to the beginning of the review. Maybe it was because I didn't have high expectations maybe it's because I didn't understand the source material. I don't know what it is, you know, but I really did enjoy this game. And in some ways I actually kind of enjoyed it a little bit more than Mythotopia. I mean, now don't get me wrong. I'm not getting rid of my Mythotopia. I still like me some Mythotopia, but Onward to Venus to me is, is just a little kind of more fun, you know, just, just straight out fun. And, the opportunity to kind of you know go right at your opponent i know that's in mythotopia too but it's straight mathematics there you know Uh, you might have a few little cards you could play a general card a hero card something of that nature that might swing a battle but it's basically hey who runs out of cards that they can put out to increase their strength there or who runs out of military counters and can't continue the battle so that i win in Onward to Venus, you have that die-rolling aspect, that uncertainty aspect that, to me, is really essential for any kind of conflict game. I, I, I don't really love th- as much determinism as there is in some kind of Euro games where there's a conflict theme. Uh, Mythotopia, I think, you know, I, I like it, I enjoy it, but I just feel like the engine in Onward to Venus is a little bit more exciting when it comes to the conflict resolution in the game and since the conflict resolution is used when it's player versus player or when it's player trying to take over something on another planet it really doesn't matter you still have that tense uh, exciting moments you still have that hand management do i have enough cards to augment what it is I'm trying to do. Otherwise, I'm wasting an action. And when you have a game that's basically going to take place over three rounds, you know you don't have all day and a weekend in order to get this done. I mean, you, you have to kind of be efficient in the game. And so the sort of risk management of Onward to Venus I really enjoy. So um, of those two kind of Martin Wallace games, I, I really kind of felt originally – You know, Mythotopia was going to be the one that I was really, really going to dig and wasn't really interested in Onward to Venus. Well, I got to say, I I really am interested in Onward to Venus. I'm interested in playing it more. I'm interested in playing it with, uh, you know, my friends again, with my son again. Uh, It is a game that... I really kind of enjoyed and was pleasantly surprised by. So, Onward to Venus to me is is a fun game if you enjoy that kind of conflict, if you don't mind a little bit of randomness with those dice and with the card draws. You know, it kind of reminds me of Aeroplanes in that way. You know, there's definitely a dose of luck in there, but if you don't mind that, it's going to be a game that you're really going to enjoy and it's one that I recommend personally that's Onward to Venus. Well, that's about all the time we have today for this episode of The Long View. I, of course, want to thank my sponsor, Gamesurplus.com. If you're interested in any of the games that uh, we've been discussing here, please be sure to shoot Velma an email over at games@gamesurplus.com. At if she doesn't have it in stock, she will do her level best to hunt it down for you. Uh, that's the kind of wonderful uh, commitment to customer service that they have over at gamesurplus.com to go along with their great pricing and their fantastic packaging. So see what it is that makes them so special. So... Uh, It it is just a a pleasure to uh, be sponsored by them. I also, of course, want to thank the Dice Tower. The Longview is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Please go and check out thedicetower.com. The wonderful uh, changes to the page are truly uh, utilitarian and fun and really helps you kind of customize the content that you can see and receive from the Dice Tower. Also, while you're there, check out all the other great podcasts in the Dice Tower Network. I also, of course, want to send a shout-out to my local game store, The Gamer's Edge, in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. They're conveniently off Interstate 80 in northeastern PA, so if you're in the area, stop by and see all of the wonderfulness that The Gamer's Edge has to offer you. And, of course, finally, I want to say thanks to Chris for agreeing to be on the show and to talk with us about the wonderful game of London by Martin Wallace. So thanks to him, thanks to you out there for listening, and have a wonderful night.